Radical, episode 210. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents. My name is Shane Hazel. Appreciate you guys being here. This, of course, is the last installment, part five of Bitcoin is not democratic, the age of meritocracy. This is uh, this is a bit of a long one, so we're not gonna we're not gonna hang around on the front end of this one too much. Uh, I will tell you, I want you to go into this really open minded. There are some terms that are going to elicit uh, some ideas of despotism and and those type of things, and I want you to think about it from a different perspective where. Um, as we've talked about in the past, Bitcoin removes the um, you know the the threat of force and the, the the incentive to force and coercion because of the you know the very very little if any return on that use of force. Obviously, um, when you put people's lives in danger, if you're going to force and coerce people uh, because you're a bad person and you want to take their life, liberty, and property away from them, if there's very little return on that, you're going to think twice about it. So in that, uh, in that perspective, this is the age of meritocracy. And if you're not familiar with meritocracy, it writes the current paradigm and you know, what a, what an odd thing to have to describe to people in, you know, 2022. Um, you know, the, the idea that society should be built on what you've done, what you've added to society, what you've been able to, uh, sell whether it's services or goods or ideas or whatever the case is, and uh, that you are responsible for yourself and for you know those people that you bring into the world and your family and your community. Like you're not responsible for all those things, obviously, but you are. You're going to be subject to the the market. You know, if you're not producing something uh, that the the market needs. Then it's going. It's going to tell you, in a very, very harsh way, that you're not doing what could be done to to make ends meet. In other words, so uh, it is absolutely divorced from what we have today, um, and it is not clear on which way uh, or which ways society will, you know, kind of wander after this the human species is going to do a lot of things, going to be a lot of experiments. And Alex takes a really honest approach to this. And I think really kind of a brilliant approach. So without further ado, we're going to get into this and I hope you really enjoy this last part. He's put a a ton of work into it. Um, but more so, I think this just kind of highlights how intelligent this space is, uh, especially for Austrians and libertarians, which Alex is both. So, Without further ado, the last part of Bitcoin is not democratic. Enjoy. The Age of Meritocracy, Bitcoin is Not Democratic, Part 5. The final installment of the Bitcoin is Not Democratic series explores how a society built on Bitcoin may function and how merit will supersede politics as a mode of social organization. Alexander Svetsky, March 29, 2022. Thinking about the effect Bitcoin has and will have on the organization of human society sends one down many rabbit holes. We've been down a few already. In the final part of this series, we're going to explore the idea of meritocracy alongside some flavors of that model, which I believe Bitcoin makes possible. Once again, these are thought experiments. I do not have all the answers, and in fact, may not have any of the answers. The idea is that we begin thinking about things seriously now. Projecting stupidity like democracy onto Bitcoin, and more importantly, onto a future Bitcoin standard, is just a recipe for failure. On our journey toward the age of merit, we must always remember the real struggle, the option to advance through economic means or political means. We must remember that the real distinction between the state and anarchy can be boiled down to the contrast between the given, centralized, mandatory system versus the gathered, decentralized, voluntary system. Bitcoin is our opportunity to swing the pendulum away from the tyranny of the given and back to the possibility of the gathered. I hope this series has served as a wake-up call, especially for those who've tied their identity to the idea of Bitcoin being democratic. Now, before we kick in, Let's whet our appetites with this brilliant short video I was sent last week. 
It reminds us why the first three parts of this series in particular were written. Imagine you have a friend called George. You've been friends since childhood. Although you're not as close as you were back then, you still see each other once in a while and get along very well. One day, you and George are approached by an old mutual friend, Oliver. Oliver explains that he's had a run of bad luck and is raising money to cover tuition fees for his kids. You want to help Oliver out, so you give him some money. To your surprise, George doesn't offer Oliver any help. You try to persuade him, but it's no use. Imagining yourself in this situation, do you think it's okay to threaten to use physical force against George to get him to do the right thing? Now imagine a slightly different situation. This time, a group of your friends take a vote. Six out of ten are in favour of threatening George to get him to help Oliver. Does this democratic process make it okay to threaten George? One last change to the situation. This time, imagine that many thousands of people have democratically agreed that a group, who we'll call the agents, should do whatever is necessary to take money from George and give it to Oliver's family. The agents don't explicitly threaten George at first. All they do is send him a bill. Like everyone else, though, George knows what will happen if he doesn't pay the bill. First, he'll get more letters demanding payment and the bill will get bigger. Eventually, if he still doesn't pay, agents with guns will break into his house and take him away against his will. Almost everyone pays the bills without protest. They know that agents are prepared to use as much force as necessary to overpower you if you resist. Do you think it's acceptable for the agents to threaten violence against George if he doesn't give his money towards helping Oliver's family? If we approve of state programs that redistribute wealth, we must also approve of threats of violence made against peaceful individuals, because this is how the funds are collected. On the other hand, most of us feel uncomfortable about threatening peaceful people when we imagine having to make the threats ourselves. If we feel negatively towards the idea of threatening George personally, can we really be comfortable with the threats made against him by agents of the state? Some people believe that voluntary interaction and spontaneous order are realistic and preferable alternatives to state coercion as a way of organizing society. The video links off to another short video called Sex and Taxes. You should bookmark and watch them both. Let's begin. Work. I don't want to get into the metaphysics of work here, so I'll simply point out that work is the basis of productivity and productivity the basis of progress. You can't have a society without people working. Work leads to productivity. Productivity leads to progress. Progress leads to society. To show how broken the current world really is, contrast this basic progression with the fact that you cannot simply fly to any country and work for someone. These democratic, politically driven institutions we call governments are not interested in economic reality or productivity, but in moronic protectionism, so that the lemmings who voted to keep them in power are able to continue subsisting off welfare and handouts. Cyberspace was the first realm to transcend the tentacles of the idiot state. It enabled people to work for others and add value, irrespective of their nationality or location. But even with the ability to transcend space and place, the meddling of the state via its influence on the banking and payment system, as we've seen in the recent Russia hysteria, 
has made that victory only partial. Your ability to get paid is dependent upon permission from your overlords who want to tag you, brand you, and file your details away so that they can legally rob you of a portion of your money later. Simply getting a bank account in a territory in which you're not a legal resident is nigh on impossible. Working is another level of impossibility that requires mountains of paperwork and months of wasted man hours in bureaucratic processing and begging. Once again, Bitcoin fixes this. Try it yourself. Download a wallet, secure your keys, give someone an address to pay you for your work or product or service. Simple. Value for value. No middlemen, no permission, no wastage of anyone's precious time. Bitcoin inverts the madness of the status quo, where you have to beg for permission first. It enables people to work, build wealth, and one day, when governance evolves into free-for-service, you will pay for that which you want, like any normal customer would. Want to live in the nicest city? No problem. It's a higher membership fee. Want to live cheaper? By all means, there will be a living product for that too. On a Bitcoin standard, this ability to live and work anywhere for anyone without permission becomes the actual standard, both online and in Metaspace. The notion of a social security number or a work permit is thrown out the window because it will be utterly unenforceable online and B, Citadel operators are looking for more customers and are incentivized to have productive and competent members to join the ranks of the business operating within their borders. This is where we're going. And where we're going, we don't need roads. The age of merit. Work and merit are inherently linked. Bitcoin's relationship with energy use at the network level, coupled with its cryptographic approach to presenting property rights at the meta level, result in a far deeper relationship to work than what many initially notice, and therefore, also its relationship to merit. As such, Bitcoin's existence will tilt both individual human behavior and structural societal orientation more towards productivity, progress, and most importantly, merit. It's funny coming full circle to this idea because it's actually how part one of the series began. My argument was that Bitcoin is meritocratic. While I've come to realize that this statement is not entirely accurate in and of itself, Bitcoin is more complex and not strictly meritocratic. What is accurate is that relationships and social coordination will have to adapt to more meritocratic metas in order to thrive. There is a powerful idea here. Bitcoin is almost like a specter, keeping us accountable in all senses of the world, reminding us of the middle way. With that in mind, what is meritocracy? Before we explore the answer to that question, it might be helpful to get clear on what it is not. Because remember, where we're going, we don't need roads. If we get confused and build a bunch of metaphorical roads on metaphorical oceans, we're only going to get in our own way. Projecting the consciousness and frameworks of our current paradigm forward helps nobody. Faux meritocracy. We've all heard the term, but does anyone really understand what it means? At the risk of giving yourself a mild aneurysm, I suggest you watch the video below, not because it will help you understand the concept of meritocracy, but it will show you why it's so goddamn important to have a foundation in Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and anarcho-capitalism before espousing any sort of political ideas. Admin break here. There is a video that is linked, uh, which will be linked in the show notes that has the meritocracy party uh, talking about meritocracy. So if you want to check it out, it's in the links uh, in the articles about halfway down, you'll see it. Back to the reading. I know I'm being harsh, but I do it tongue in cheek. I actually reached out to the guy and since he made that video, he did find Bitcoin, which I'm happy for. In fact, if I look back on my own naivete from 2014, I too would have believed some of the things he said. Why? Because they sound nice. This is why the first four parts of this series were written. 
We all know the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Some of us, those who can partially recognize the problem but completely misdiagnose it, are prone to slap a series of illogical, inconsistent ideas together and become a potentially greater threat than an ally. We must be sharp and consistent in our critiques in order to attract the most able and intelligent to our cause. The alternative is being followed by the long tail of lemmings whose opinion doesn't matter in the first place. Vague platitudes or impossible claims like equality of opportunity for everyone and the best education is a right for every young child are signs that the necessary work has not been done yet. Arbitrarily defining government actors as experts in their field who are driven by reason and science is not what makes something meritocratic. In fact, it is the pathway to hell, as evidenced in the past two years. In the absence of studies of morality and ethics, much of what traditional religions explore, the secular state simply becomes the new god, and obedience the religion. Lastly, the idea of government that can competently deliver anything they've promised is nonsense. Government and merit are two incompatible ideas. Politics can only embody merit if it is economically accountable. And so long as politics is in the realm of a government that can influence economies by virtue of issuing money, we are caught in the cyclical trap from which we're now fighting our way out. This is why even the most sound definition of meritocracy, something akin to an anarcho-capitalist volunteerist society, while great in theory, is impossible without Bitcoin. Bitcoin is what makes a real, meritocratic mode of organization among humans possible. There is no alternative. A meritocracy requires private property, proof of work, economic consequence, calculation, free markets, and prices. So long as mechanisms exist to acquire, accumulate, and protect wealth by virtue of politics and socialization of bad decision-making, society will always devolve into the tyranny of mindless masses. Let's dive into what the emergence of a meritocracy may look, feel, and sound like. Meritocracy. Despite the logical and economic consistencies of the various flavors of anarchism, they all seem to fall short in dealing with or utilizing the necessary emergence of hierarchies and power structures. Having run businesses for over a decade and been a focal point for group outings, I am keenly aware of the need for leadership and some level of influence, power, over the participants in a group. This form of power is not coercive, but it is directive and authoritative. I've written about hierarchies of competence in the past, and I believe they are a cornerstone for a healthy functioning of any group. The anarchic idea that there are no hierarchies is, in my opinion, misguided. The nuance lies in the distinction between hierarchies of competence and hierarchies of decree, the former being economic and moral in nature, while the latter being political and immoral. Authority, I believe, is necessary, but not just arbitrary authority. It must be earned. Think about the master and the apprentice. The master has power and influence over his apprentice by virtue of the authority he has earned over the years, honing his craft. Earned authority is related to merit. In order to become the best version of yourself, you must work on yourself. You must expend time and energy toward building, creating, out-competing entropy. This manifestation of life that you exhibit in your pursuit of becoming more is my definition of merit and at the macro level is how I believe humans organize within a society most naturally. To a large degree, it's the underlying theme of how we've organized ourselves over millennia, similar to how capitalism has and always will exist, no matter how much politics you have with. Humans need to eat competence is the ultimate selector. The problem is, as always, how much non-meritocratic, arbitrary decree is able to infect the system and cause it to decay by countering this organic self-organization and even reversing the momentum. 
Anthropy is a bitch, and she's always there waiting for us to get in our way. History is littered with stories of meritocratic empires brought down by the cancer of lies, the greatest and most dangerous lies being the economic ones we tell ourselves as we step even closer toward starvation and oblivion. As shown in Part 3, when the political can influence the economic, you have a system that will diverge from reality inch by inch until it no longer maps onto any territory. It becomes worthless. The empire of meritocracy becomes the empire of lies. Every great collapse is a function of the deviation from territory with false maps, and false maps are always the result of hubris and willful blindness, i.e. unbounded decrees and doctrines. That's where we are today. One big empire of fraud collapsing in on itself under the gravity of its own stupidity and fallacy. But the night is darkest before the dawn. So it's also a time of great possibility. The fork in the road we see before us with Bitcoin promises to help us transcend this incessant degradation into cancerous lies by making the prime economic laws immune to politics. On a short leash, political ideologies must adapt to the territory and sharpen their approach or simply cease to exist. There are no alternatives. There is no room for fantasy. There is only correction and adaptation, similar to what life experiences as it evolves. As a result, politics must become smaller and function like a local strategy, not a global doctrine or mandate. This is how I think about meritocracy, and I believe energy, money, in our case, Bitcoin, is the necessary prerequisite for moving on to the modality of coexistence. Merocratic Feudalism If Bitcoin moves us toward greater merocratic order, what might the actual social strata or layering of such a future society look like? I've discussed the idea of merocratic feudalism on some podcasts in the past, so I will try to elaborate here. First, let's clear up some terms and confusions. Feudalism is generally thought of as brutish, corrupt, elitist, and outdated structure from the medieval past. But little do the people who brandish it as such realize that we're living in the technocratic feudalist world today. They look back upon the medieval ages with disdain and a holier-than-thou sneer while they perform their role in a modern, more corrupt version of their supposed worst nightmare. It's embarrassing. Furthermore, because they've not spent a minute thinking about it, and instead just swallowed whatever manure their high school indoctrinators fed them, they're oblivious to what the actual issues with feudalism were. It's not that there are classes in feudalism, but that these classes can become static and stale, that the constituents within each class remain there irrespective of the value they add, their productive capacity, their merit, or lack thereof. Newsflash, that's the world we live in today. We have literal zombie companies like IBM, Hertz, and Boeing operating purely because the government bailed out their incompetent asses with money stolen from you and I. In doing so, they made classes of modern feudalism even more static and our relative positions on the hierarchy more unfair. A functional society requires class mobility in the Uncommunist Manifesto, Mark Moss and I discuss dynamic equilibrium as a necessary ingredient for thriving societies, the ability to climb by virtue of merit, and the possibility of falling as a result of mistakes and errors in judgment are both absolutely critical. It's what makes the game fair, and the only way a game continues to be played is if it is fair. There must be an incentive, disincentive structure in social hierarchies that applies to all participants across the classes in order for the system to be structurally coherent and robust. If the rules are different for different players, the game begins to break down. This is why I propose meritocratic feudalism as an idea. It embodies the organizing principles of hierarchies and classes alongside the dynamic nature of status, effort, merit, and value. On a Bitcoin standard, it seems as if this, and variations of it, are the kind of structures that will emerge. 
private citadels. Well, meritocratic feudalism looks at what the internal structure of a particular society may be, each one is encapsulated in a citadel of sorts. This does not necessarily mean a castle with a drawbridge, but then again, it also does not negate that possibility. The idea that we'll have city-states, citadels, gated communities, and perhaps more broadly, an ephemeral Bitcoin citadel that transcends time, place, and space, like the Jews have had for millennia, is not only compelling, but quite possible. The more ephemeral version is, in effect, how we've started, and places like Bitcoin Twitter are manifestations of these early citadels, zones in which like-valued people come together and either agree or berate each other over small differences behind keyboards may at times seem crazy, but they are integral to the formation of early alliances that may one day open the door to metaspace citadels. These IRL extensions may start out as simple communities that are built with the intention to go off-grid, becoming ever more self-sufficient and self-reliant. Or they may be more commercial in nature such as the projects the Free Private Cities Foundation is involved in in Honduras. Either way, the central themes are their emergent and more voluntary nature, especially in cyberspace. If, in metaspace, their privately run nature and local scale, if the territories are small enough, they may operate through some form of committee led by the wisest and most competent. If large enough to be cities, they may then be governed by their private owners or CEO kings, in a way similar to how hotels or all-inclusive resorts are today. And most importantly, the relationships between governor and governed evolves. If you've read my work in the past, you'll be familiar with the following chart from part three of the Jordan Peterson series, Bitcoin, Bitcoiners, and Citadels. Admin break to describe the graph below or the graphic below. Relationship between governors and governed. On the left, you have the fiat standard, which is a triangle that is cut in half, the overlord being at the pinnacle of the triangle, and the subject obviously being at the bottom. In the Bitcoin standard, you have a Venn diagram. On the left circle, you have service provider. On the right circle, you have customer. In the middle of the overlapping circles, you have cooperation. Back to the article. I know it sounds like a stretch, but if you don't think it's possible, you've not yet spent the time to appreciate the implications that Bitcoin will have on human micro and macro behavior. In fact, you may just be a slave to the dogma and propaganda of the current paradigm. It would appear that the more liberty we lose, the less people are able to imagine how liberty might work. It's a fascinating thing to behold. The idea of privatizing roads or water supplies sounds outlandish, even though we have a long history of both. People even wonder how anyone would be educated in the absence of public schools, as if markets themselves didn't create in America the world's most literate society in the 18th and 19th centuries. This list could go on and on, but the problem is the capacity to imagine freedom the very source of life for civilization and humanity itself is being eroded in our society and culture. The less freedom we have, the less people are able to imagine what freedom feels like, and therefore, the less they are willing to fight for its restoration. Lou Rockwell, 2010 The idea of citadels requires you to imagine a world in which idiot governments no longer exist. I know this can be hard for some of us, either because we're lacking courage, lacking imagination, lacking intelligence, or are just overwhelmed by the constant bombardment of stupidity being spewed out from every screen and speaker around us. I get it, but it's our responsibility to step up in spite of these facts. If we don't rise above the madness and help ourselves, the morons in government are for damn sure not going to help us. That we can be certain of. The status quo cannot continue. It's falling apart. You have people barely fit for a nursing home pretending to run countries and megalomaniacs cosplaying Dr. Evil telling you to own nothing and be happy with your serving of bugs and lentils. These citadels are more than just an idea. They are necessary.
Memberships and clubs. How might these citadels work? What is their economic model? How will they pay for services, defense, security, and infrastructure? Will their model be bare bones or full service? Again, impossible for one mere mind to know what all the variations will be, let alone the intricacies and nuances that will emerge as we learn and iterate. The only mechanism we know of that can possibly work this out is the free market. I believe the world will run multiple experiments side by side and the best modalities will win. Furthermore, what is defined as best will vary from region to region between people and across cultures. I can envision an entire array of markets for living where competition and economic accountability drive them toward the provision of more novel solutions at better prices. Notwithstanding my inability to project a precise outcome of this experimentation, I do have an idea of what sort of general economic model might outperform others. Gas, or governance as a service. We've used these models to revolutionize service in cyberspace and drive toward better features, more value, and lower prices. Why would we not apply this sort of model? to Metaspace. Think of an all-inclusive resort or hotel experience or membership to the Soho House. You pay a membership fee of some sort covering certain basics. You may choose to have some sort of add-ons or variations that make your contract with the service provider bespoke. You may even have a series of memberships across multiple territories and use them how you want. Perhaps you buy ownership or lifetime membership in a territory early and you're able to sublet part of your rights when you need to. We could even employ a timeshare sort of model used today as an effective means of pooling resources for shared ownership of private property. Who knows? The options to scale up initial citadels and later operate them are not only endless, but they're superior. Why would we find it strange that commercially oriented entities would somehow not be able to deliver anything incompetent government can? In fact, I find it absurd to think that any government operating in an economic vacuum could ever outcompete this kind of private city gas provider. One lives by how much money they siphon out of the populace, while the other by how well they service their clients. There is absolutely no possible argument for public government other than the fact that because they currently hold the largest stick, that does not defend their existence. But should if anything force us to think deeply about how to disempower them and bankrupt them from within until they crumble and dissolve, why? Because they are the ones we need to protect ourselves from most. They are the greatest possible aggressor. CEO Kings Next, who might these territory operators actually be? Let's call them CEO Kings. By virtue of Bitcoin's abolition of the state, I envision the rise of kings, lords, and nobles. A new age of economically accountable monarchs operating their territories and servicing their customers in the same way that the great innovative companies would. In their domain, they are the kings. They are the ultimate authority because they are the apex property owner. And while they may come with risk, there is a natural balancing mechanism built into it because of the digital nature of wealth and the relationship between the governor and the governed. As mentioned earlier, Bitcoin enables mobility, not just up and down the social strata, but between the jurisdictions and as such transforms the returns to violence. It increases the cost to attack and lowers the price of defense, of trade, and cooperation. Future CEO kings will live and die by their bottom line and that bottom line will come from serving their customers. Sure, some of them may become tyrants, but in a world with more choice and mobility of wealth, the returns on tyranny diminish significantly. In fact, 
the risk that you run your territory into the ground and be acquired for sats on the Bitcoin by a consortium of superior operators means that you'll want to think twice before shitting where you sleep. We're beginning to see the early signs of this already. I'll go out on a limb and say that the most important thing Bukele has done, perhaps even more so than making Bitcoin legal tender, is the following. Admin break to describe the graphic. It is a screenshot of Naib Bukele, who is the quote-unquote president of El Salvador. Uh, It's from his Twitter account. In his bio, he is labeled himself as the CEO of El Salvador. The tweet that is attached in this is from Bloomberg Opinion, and it reads, Inflation stings most if you earn less than $300,000 a year. Here's how to deal with it. Take the bus. Don't buy in bulk. Um, And then Naib uh, responds, retweeting this with his own tweet saying, the most powerful country in the world is falling so fast that it makes you rethink what are the real reasons. Something so big and powerful can't be destroyed so quickly unless the enemy comes from within. End of admin note. What the world needs more than anything in terms of leadership is economically accountable territory operators. Think Steve Jobs blended with JFK. Charisma, foresight, creativity, business acumen, and a focus on the product and serving the customer. Bitcoin makes this kind of future possible. Leadership. A quick note on leadership. I was speaking to Tomer Strolight the other day, and he mentioned a story from the old employee of his. Tomer had asked him if he wanted to be a leader and what that duty entailed. The response was that he could be in charge. This is not out of the ordinary. Most people conflate leadership with control, dictates, ordering, and with being in charge. I know I thought this when I was younger. But as I matured, I came to the realization that true leadership is about responsibility and empowering the right people to take charge. So while yes, to some degree the leader is in charge of finding those people, an effective leader is actually not in charge of the minutia. They are not a micromanager or a control freak like modern statists. This is what made people like George Washington, Alexander the Great, Robert Noyce, and the mature Steve Jobs, incredible leaders. These are the archetypes who will emerge to lead the new world. A network of dictators. Now, to piss a few people off, how will these CEO kings interact at a macro scale? Will they form alliances? Are there economic advantages of partnering and aligning with other CEO kings and their territories? Think of Star Alliance. It is a global airline alliance formed by five competitors who realized that while they run separate businesses, there is value in creating a shared network for their clients to benefit from. Mind you, this was all before flying was hijacked by the government and turned into one of the most degrading experiences on Earth. All of the joy has been sucked out of it since 2001, and especially since 2020. Another example of the sheer incompetence and bumbling buffoonery of the state. Government intervention and destruction aside, we may see the same sort of thing happen with markets of living. As each of these emergent citadels becomes a sort of metaspace node, they may form a network of citadels and territories who align around Bitcoin's economic advantages, their complementary nature, or by virtue of of having shared goals and values. The question I would then like to push is the following. Does Bitcoin make local, economically accountable dictatorships possible? It's an interesting idea, and one that may work in a world where the returns to violence have changed. So the cost of attack is significantly higher than the cost of defense. I know the word dictator only serves to trigger people. I do mean leaders, but these leaders will most certainly be called dictators, 
and to a large degree, in the early days, they will likely need to operate with more authoritative zeal. There is both wartime and peacetime behavior. Think about it this way. One must be the dictator of their own lives and resources to begin with. As private property extends, so too does one's dictatorship. As the primary private property owner in a territory, will you not have the earned or paid for authority to dictate terms with those who choose to work with or for you? I bring this up because people with views like Alex Gladstein always like to point out flaws in supposed dictators like Bukele while turning a blind eye to the atrocities perpetrated by democratic governments such as Chianida and Australia and New Zealand. My retort is, so what if Bukele is a dictator? Better the devil you know that is economically accountable and has some skin in the game by being on a Bitcoin standard than some nameless, faceless, disembodied institution represented by representatives with no skin in the game. The former is more constrained than the latter who never pays the bill. The following quote by C.S. Lewis is apt here. Quote, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make hell on earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states, which we may not want to regard as a disease, is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will. To be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. End quote. C.S. Lewis. So I implore you to think beyond the labels. They've been so watered down now by a soft, ever-triggered, and over-feminized society that they're meaningless anyway. This possible future in which a network of dictators operate a diverse set of territories is one that I would argue offers up far superior opportunities and living services than any modern government of today could ever hope to provide. There are going to be many, many things to work out along the way. But the kicker is, this tether to an unchanging economic order in the form of Bitcoin's fixed money supply and uncensorable, transparent monetary and temporal network. Someone, or some few, are going to have to be top dogs, but better that the top dogs have to work to stay there and risk falling because we're all playing by the same economic rules. That's a fairer and more robust world, and one which I personally hope my descendants will inherit. In closing, wow, we're finally at the end of it all. It's been a blast writing this. I set out to write one article about why Bitcoin is not democratic. I wanted to remind people that it is enforced by the individual, for the individual and their votes have no bearing on anyone else's private property. My goal was to show you that Bitcoin is true, voluntary, anarchic consensus. In the process, and almost 30,000 words later, we've got a mini treatise on the grand scam of democracy and ideas for the future of human organization and coexistence. I didn't expect that, but I'm glad we've taken this journey. A summation of key ideas. Bitcoin, in many ways, is the renaissance of responsibility. It is antithetical and incompatible with collectivist doctrines, including and especially democracy, which are hinged on the concepts like representation and voting and prone to devolving into mob rule, tragedies of the commons, behavioral decay, and heightening of time preference. Bitcoin is an economic, not political beast, and such makes the socialization of poor decisions via majority rule or representative decree impossible. 
There are no representative rulers on a Bitcoin standard who can operate in an economic vacuum and thus a contractual void. As such, it localizes any potential moral hazard, which is a central theme and, in fact, systematic to collectivist politics. In part three, we explained why human rights are a scam. They are merely an elaborate method of encroaching upon the property rights of those who bear the responsibility side of the ledger. We also came to the realization that Bitcoin not only separates money and state, but it separates economy and politics. I'd argue the latter is a transformation that will have an impact of magnitude nobody alive today could possibly fathom. Despite our inability to appreciate the full magnitude of the change, we can still begin to think about how to orient ourselves for alignment. We can think about the law and its limitations. We can do our best to draw clear lines between property and plunder. We can structure contracts and incentives in accordance with the changing returns on violence resultant of Bitcoin's redefinition of the preservation of property rights through the mathematical, not forceful, means. With this, we can most definitely think more about the move toward anarchism, and in particular, flavors such as localism, and one day, even the rise of modern monarchies and CEO kings. There is so much change for the better ahead of us, and it's happening. In fact, there's nothing we can do to stop this change because the old guard is crumbling. A friend of mine sent me an article by Arthur Hayes today, March 21st. I didn't have time to read it, so I asked him for a high-level overview. In short, he said, quote, More or less, an analyst of the repercussions of confiscating Russia's savings, distrust in the whole system causing nations to gravitate toward hard money, gold first, later Bitcoin. To which my response was, Accurate. I've said many times, Bitcoin wins less because of what we do and more because of what the clusterfuck the state creates for itself. Classic art of war. Do not get in the way of your enemy who is making the mistake. The petrodollar truly came to an end this year, 13 years after Bitcoin came to life. The clown world globalists cut off their nose to spite their face. It's almost poetic. The timeline we're living in is full of more twists, turns, and cliches than a run-of-the-mill series on Netflix, and, as much as it is frustrating, if you step back a little, you know how it ends. The bad guys, i.e. the bumbling fools who own lives, are such a mess and cannot practice self-restraint, so need to protect their lack of control on everyone else, end up losing. They lose because A equals A, and 2 plus 2 equals 4. They will deny reality, they will gaslight us, and they will pretend with all of their might that math is racist or that gravity does not exist. But soon enough, just like Icarus experience, gravity is real. The sun melts wax, and below their false map is no longer ground but air. It's a long way down after that. In any case, we have a way to go before we rise up from the tyranny of the majority. New hysterias will continue to emerge reminiscent of the constant state of tension and angst present in Orwell's 1984. It's not over until the abomination that is democracy dissolves and is replaced with any organic emergent economic standard, a Bitcoin standard. So, to commemorate the inevitable death of democracy, I'd like to leave you with a quote and a video. But remember that the captain belongs to the most dangerous enemy to truth and freedom the solid and unmoving cattle of the majority. Oh God, the terrible tyranny of the majority. Faber to Montague, Fahrenheit 451, by Bray Bradbury. And the tiny dot. Admin break to describe the video that is too long to throw in here. It is a, uh, it's a video about a tiny dot representing the hundred, uh, the few hundred congressmen and women out there that, uh, line up against the American people as a graphic of hundreds of millions of dots and, uh, and take money from them, uh, for their own good, but, uh, worth watching, obviously going to be in the show notes. If you would like to go see it back to the article, I look forward to an age where responsibility shapes society 
and consequence is once again the clear feedback mechanism that will make us better, smarter, stronger humans. An age where power is concentrated in distributed, competitive nodes and democracy is but a memory. An age of competence and a period of human history where we transcend the cyclical stupidity that is unhinged politics. I have faith that Bitcoin will accomplish that and change the course of human development forever. Laura, forever. Thank you for reading, and I sincerely hope you found value in trading your time for it. There will be loads more to come. If you'd like to follow more of my work, you can see the links below. Blog on Bitcoin Magazine, article by Alexander Svetsky, Twitter, at Ghost of Svetsky, at Timeless Bitcoin, at Uncommunist, at Wake Up Pod. This concludes the Bitcoin is Not Democratic series, part five, the age of meritocracy. Um, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll discuss just a little bit. All right. So this is a fascinating uh, article, I think, that Alexander Svesky has written here. And the, the the ability to play with things without people getting enraged, right? Like when we talk about uh, dictatorships and king CEOs and things like that, like he is obviously not thinking of them in today's terms. And and I think this is kind of the, the brilliance of Alexander to, to be able to, to take these terms and to transfer them into the future under what would be a completely different paradigm in terms of economics. Um, it starts off with talking about work a little bit. And I, I wanted to, you know, kind of just go through this a little and, and say, you know, obviously in, in any productive society, uh, I think obviously work is the, um, kind of the, the catalyst that pushes everything. Right. And, uh, to his point, you know, work and productivity, progress in society, uh, is, is really, you know, the, the basis of a society is, is, you know, what are you doing to add value to your life, to add value to other people's lives in your community? And so it's, it's not that, you know, all work is going to be rewarded and, you know, in, in a, in a market that doesn't require a good or service that you're providing, obviously, um, it, it really doesn't mean that you're going to get paid a lot. It doesn't mean you're going to get paid. But if you are contributing, you know, a lot to your society, uh, to the people around you that people will pay for, then obviously um, work is going to pay off or at least pay the bills. And that's obviously something um, that's missing now, right? There's so many people that do work in government space bureaucratic space that will never ever be worth the time and effort and resources that they steal from us to use for their pet projects and their laws or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, <clears throat> that's going to get found out. And I think that's really the kind of the coolest thing about this is, you know, as, as we progress in this new economic paradigm, you know, the idea of merit in your work is going to be absolutely imperative. Um, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of other things. Obviously, you talked about the faux uh, meritocracy that pops up and, and things like that. But in reality, you know, when everybody is, you know, brought to the same economic paradigm by the same, you know, basically, uh, you know, a ledger and a constitution that is not breakable, right? It is everybody abides by the same rules. I think it's a really interesting and key concept, obviously, of you know the, the change that we're going to see. Um, but meritocracy is is just what society should have been, and what society I think for a long time was not wholly. Obviously, I mean, you know, you look at you know, especially American history. I think there's some things that we need to confront as Americans and to be able to let go of that history, I think is going to be key for moving on as the human species. You know, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of baggage that comes with America, right? With being an American. Um, and there are a lot of people that don't understand the, the, the plights that have been offered by others. And so sometimes, you know, when something is, 
um, damn near, you know, it not only imperfect, but I mean, America was all about owning slaves, right? Like we had slaves. Um, we've obviously since the 1860s all been enslaved, but I digress. You know, this is just one of those things where maybe the best thing that can happen um, is this this reorganizing of the human species, this new uh, paradigm shift where, you know, you're coming into something that's new and there will be people who have advantages going into this, but there are also people in life and by nature that just have advantages anyway. But it doesn't mean you're static. And I think that was one of the greatest points that he covered is in any society outside a clown world, right? When you have upward and downward mobility. That is the key to a society that is also freer. Right now, we don't have anybody paying the price for the responsibility. He's, he calls it obviously skin in the game, but we don't have anybody paying the price for the responsibility that you know the, the power brings. Um, and then obviously there are those of us that are way more qualified than the idiots in government um, that have ideas and solutions and everything else that will never be allowed to move upward in those spaces. Um, you know, obviously I, I kind of look at this and I just like, yeah, you know, that's, that's absolutely, you know, spot on, you know, and I, I smile a lot as I'm reading this guys and as I'm taking breaks and all that kind of stuff, like y'all shake my head a little bit and try not to snicker into the microphone because of all of the parallels and, and sometimes um, just absolute truth that comes out of it. So I thought that was really cool. The The ideas of CEO Kings, oh man, you know, this is one of those things when you first read it, you're like, wow, yeah, this sounds interesting. But because of, you know, some of the, the thought experiment that goes into this, seeing it from a, a different angle um, and hearing the thoughts that Alex proposes, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's not that, that you know none of this is you know going to come true or will come true or whatever the chances are. It's just it's interesting to kind of see this and you know the fact that um, he notes that you know the president of El Salvador um, considers himself the CEO out in the open of El Salvador. You, know, you don't hear that kind of talk out of you know any of the presidents of the United States, right? Like, oh no, we're a government. Well, there are corporation, right? The The United States was incorporated uh, a very, very long time ago. Uh, and that's obviously all part of the, the coup that happened uh, with the Constitutional Republic. So, you know, always, always learning, always seeing things and, and who knows which way, you know, any of this goes or how many different ways it does go where it actually works for some people, right? I think that's going to be a really, really interesting thing to watch um, trans, you know, like kind of transpire over the rest of my life. Cause I think, although we're probably going to see Bitcoin adoption in the very near future, there's going to be that transition period where we're really kind of figuring it out. Right. The cool thing is, is it lends itself to best practices and it lends itself to speed. Um, when you fail and you fail fast, which is exactly what Bitcoin enables. Uh, you have a culture that learns how to fail fast and learns from mistakes, and not only their mistakes, but mistakes of others. That's going to that's gonna create a much better uh, society for human beings and much better human species all around, right? I don't know. Like, I'm, uh, you know, I'm on the fence about CEO kings and all that kind of stuff. You know, maybe not for me. I'm kind of, you know, uh, one of these people that likes to be on his own anyway. But um, I do understand some of the attraction or the idea towards something like that, where if there is a bunch of land and they do want to live in a community um, of like-minded people or, or a space of like-minded people, that maybe that's one of those things, you know, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, I, I, I thought this was a, a really cool series. I thought, you know, the, the thinking, um, the thought experiments, the, you know, kind of understanding where we've come from, where we might be headed, um, with the idea that who knows what's 
you know, what's possible, what might come about. And it's, I don't know, it's really exciting. It's super exciting for me. Um, I am, I'm telling you, I'm chomping at the bit. Um, I'm bringing, I'm going to bring, you know, Bitcoin uh, and Mises and the Libertarian Party together. And this is going to be, you know, probably, I think, one of the biggest pieces of moving not only America, but the rest of the world into a place of real liberty. So at any rate, I think I will wrap it there. Um, hopefully I can get Alex on schedule to come in and, and have a discussion and, and hang out and talk and uh, give you guys um, you know, the, the floor to ask questions even. And I think that'd be a really cool thing to do. So if you guys have questions for Alex, maybe start getting them into me now and uh, maybe I can get them to answer some of your questions. Outside of that, guys, you guys have an awesome weekend. Thank you guys for doing this with me. Thank you for going down the path um, of education, of enlightenment, of you know, trying and and understanding uh, and growing. Like this is this is a big deal, and this is a lot of places where adults get caught flat-footed. Uh, they don't continue to learn over their lifetime. Um, which makes them stale and not receptive to new and better ways of doing things. So I appreciate you guys having that open mind and I appreciate you guys coming down this path with me. So until next time, I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.